Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today, we talk with Stavros Vajukis. He is a professor and the department vice chair of biological and agricultural engineering at UC Davis. His research focuses on mechanization and automation for specialty crops. He is currently leading two projects to build a robot that can locate and pick fruit efficiently, while simultaneously developing a shake-and-catch harvesting system for fruit to prevent fall damage. In 2016, after being on our campus for four years, he was awarded the UC Davis College of Engineering Outstanding Junior Faculty Award. He focuses on the design, development, and testing of actuators, sensors, and control systems for optimal management of inputs and products. In this episode, we talk about the use of robotics in agriculture, the design process for robots, and the challenges of implementation at a wide scale. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Stavros Vujukis. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to discuss with you, and uh, I'm glad to be here. We would love to hear a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in agricultural robotics and overall how did you get where you are now? All right, <laughs> that's a great question. And the, the trajectory was not really uh, that uh, smooth. Um, first of all, when I, when I was growing up, I always knew I wanted to be an engineer. I was the tinkerer kind of person with electronics and motors and gears. Um, and um, when I went to college, I, I went into electrical engineering. That was in Greece. Uh, and after graduation, there was no doubt in my mind I wanted to do graduate work. I wanted to do research. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I was fascinated with technology. Um, and so um, I came to the U.S. Uh, with a Fulbright uh, Fellowship. Um, and I did my master's at SUNY Buffalo in New York, where, interesting enough, I, I took some courses in computer graphics and... and I was fascinated by computer graphics, but not really so much for, on the rendering side, but on the animation of the characters. That was, you know, very challenging. And I, I quickly realized that character animation and control really relates to how do you control uh, uh, things like arms, manipulator arms, robots. And so uh, uh, I decided to switch to another school, uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which was very well known for its robotics program. It has an, a NASA center for robotics. And so I did my PhD in robotics. Um, and after that, I moved back to Greece, to my um, home country. And um, eventually, I got a faculty position uh, at the university uh, but that position was uh, in agricultural automation. And this is how I started, uh, I was introduced in that field, and I started using my knowledge, skills, and interests into applying automation robotics to agriculture. So here I am, you know, faculty member in Greece, had no plan to move, uh, you know, I was tenured, life was okay, uh, but the thing is that I was always a tinker. I wanted to build things. And, and, and back there, um, I could do a lot of modeling and theoretical analysis, but I, the resources were not there to actually build stuff. And so I remember one night I was um, on my laptop, uh, you know, doing some work, 
on the couch, not on the laptop. <laughs> and uh, I saw an advertisement for a position here at UC Davis uh, on agricultural robotics. And I told my wife, I said, wow, th this is everything that I would like to do, but I will never do. And she said, why don't you apply and, you know, maybe we can go there. I said, no, come on. You know, our life is all fixed here. And uh, But then I did. And then the rest is history. So we, we came here as a family in 2012. And so I've been with Davis since uh, 2012, working on agricultural robotics and building stuff. So that, that's the trajectory. Yeah. That's amazing. Did you have any experience in agricultural robotics before that? Or was coming to Davis, was that your first shot at applying those two fields together? Well, like I said, uh, back in Greece, uh, I was working in agricultural automation and robotics. So I started working in the field in 2002. But for the next 10 years, when I was uh, in Greece, uh, I was working mostly on theoretical problems, on simulations, on modeling. Uh, so it was still agricultural robotics, but it was more you know, navigation and, and, and path planning and and, and thing, logistics, which didn't require building uh, actual robots. It was mostly uh, computer programming and, and modeling. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of work done then, but then since I came here, I've been doing a lot of development work and actually building our own robots in the lab and, and using them in the field. So, yeah. That's great. I think everyone nowadays has an idea of what a robot is, at least to them. But could you give us your definition? Yeah, well, my definition shouldn't and wouldn't differ much from the <laughs> general standard definition. So a robot is essentially a machine that is programmable. And that means that it can change the way it behaves or, or what it does based on the software it's executing. Now, what does it consist of? It has sensors to um, get information from the environment, but also from its own structure and joints and, and moving parts. It has actuators, so it can move itself or parts of itself. And then it has a computer on board that runs software that essentially closes the loop of perception to action. So, so a robot will execute code that reads the sensors, and then based on the task that it needs to do, it controls its motors or, you know, whatever other actuators it has to accomplish the task. That, that would be the definition in general of a robot. And could you explain the Internet of Things and how that plays into the relationship with the sensors and the actuators mm. and the actual software? Yeah, so, so, so the idea or the concept of the Internet of Things is that you have a lot of physical objects which are not necessarily robots. They could be a toothbrush or a speaker or, or a sprinkler or a washing machine or anything. And, and, and those physical objects have some sensors also, but they also have a system, a way to communicate either among themselves or with some other system over the, over a network, over the internet. So it's this idea that pretty much everything we have around us could be interconnected 
could be gathering data, sending it to somewhere else, and also improve or optimize its own operation using information from other devices or, or places. So it's interconnecting essentially everything or as much as possible. And, and you know, again, light bulbs, toothbrushes, uh, uh, washing machines, dryers, the, you know, your doorbell, all of that. And so in terms of robotics, um, it, 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 it relates to how robots are part of the Internet of Things. So essentially, are they networked? Mm -hmm. Can we get access to the, to the data coming from the robots from anywhere else? And can we also uh, affect the operation of the robot from anywhere else by sending it either data or uh, uh, algorithms? Could you give us maybe a real-world example of how you are using or potentially going to use Internet of Things in agriculture? Yes. So, um, although it's not... So, so the Internet of Things, for example, is currently used um, when we deploy sensor networks in fields where, for example, you can measure soil humidity, um, other properties of the soil, temperature, air temperature, soil temperature, air humidity. And you do that from uh, uh, several places. And those th places could be in your own field, but they could be in other fields too. And maybe you have insect traps that are internetworked, so you can monitor the insect population in different fields, orchards, for example. All of that data could be aggregated and then you could be running software that not only monitors a specific field but it has a, a bigger picture of what's going on in a larger area and for example you might have software that monitors insect uh, population increase or dynamics over a wide region and then can give you information or predict what the insect population will be um, in your field. So that would be an example of how we use internetworked sensors to gather local information, process it centrally, and then you know uh, uh, provide actionable information to individual growers. That's not robotics, it's Internet of Things, it's uh, internetworking sensors. But the same concepts can apply to irrigation or even to robots that are working in a certain field and then their data uh, uh, is uploaded, for example, on the cloud and it's used by other robots, for example, to learn to do a task better. Uh, as an example, let's say you have a weeding robot. It's collecting images of weeds. Uh, those images could be uploaded into the cloud into a, another location um, and then process centrally so so overall you get better algorithms to recognize weeds based on information from different sources different type times of the year different environments etc so those could be application examples of internet of things applied to agriculture yeah have you seen any uses where they you have sensors in the field and then those sensors tell a robot when to deploy based on certain factors. Cause in my head I could see 
oh, the soil composition changes in this way when this weed is present. So we need to go send that robot out there to go find that weed and pluck it. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true or not, but have you seen that application? Not quite yet, although the concept is there. Um, not quite yet because deploying sensors in the field when it comes to practice is not that easy because of energy issues like, you know, do you need batteries or how do you charge those sensors? Um, a cost, you know, whether those sensors will be there for a week or a month or a year and will they last long enough? So it is possible to have such a, um, such a scheme. But what what happens more often is that you have a machine, a robot that drives through uh, uh, and then detects problems and issues and then acts upon them at the same time, in real time. Or maybe there is a scouting robot, so you can think of it as a mobile sensor that goes around, Mm. does what you described, builds some kind of soil fertility map, humidity map, whatever it is, and then another specialized robot goes and takes action based on the information gathered by the previous robot. Mm. That's also a a scenario that's being used. That makes sense. And with all this interconnected data, is there a trend towards open sourcing all of that data across different universities, across different private sectors, or... Does it seem to be closed off to different projects? Good question. So it's a mixture of all of those. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, large companies like John Deere or CNH and others have developed their own platforms where all of the tractors and equipment that they sell, them, the new ones, they are internetworked. So uh, all the sensors from these tractors can upload data to the cloud where it's being processed, right? Uh, but what these companies do is also they they make deals so that other companies' equipment can have access or intercommunicate. And so they establish protocols where other vendors can come in and, 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 and uh, tap on this infrastructure. Uh, these are driven by companies. Uh, but of course, there is... Um, there are other uh, open source uh, protocols. I mean, there is an effort to develop such protocols so that smaller or other companies developing equipment, sensors, robots, etc., can use those protocols to uh, to communicate. But it's still it's still a mixed landscape because it's very dynamic. So we have a a, a blend of all of those uh, approaches. And. Have you seen or can you speak on the implementation of data into agriculture? How is that changing the sector in terms of finances? Because it seems initially that, from my understanding, is that if you're working in the agricultural field, if you were working on a farm, most of your revenue would be coming from the actual product. But it seems like with John Deere, with these companies collecting these massive clouds of data, that, that can also be a source of income. Can you speak to that at all? Um, it, it it really depends on the data. For example, the uh, what I mentioned about uh, John Deere and the data they collect, that's primarily data uh, that relates to the uh, performance of the machines themselves. Mm. So based on that data, they can offer you preventive maintenance, they can monitor the 
health status of the equipment, etc. Uh, as as we enter an era where we have more sensors on machinery, for example, new autonomous tractors, they have eight or 12 cameras on them, right? Um, and, uh, and and we have harvesters with yield monitors, so we can collect a lot of data. Um, whether that data can become a, or can provide some revenue for the farmer directly, that remains to be seen. Indirectly, it can, because if the data is used to improve the management of the field, then of course, indirectly they gain. Hmm. Um, but and and also they are the owners of the data. Typically, they they it's not the company that built the tractor or the or the robot. Um, now, whether there is another use for that data, um, then perhaps the uh, the party that's interested in getting the data could pay for them. But that would depend again on the on the circumstances of the situation. I would think that most people are uh, protective of data. They don't really want to share mm -hmm. data necessarily. And and in some cases, um, there are competitive reasons that that they should not or they don't want to share data. Like for example, what's the prediction for their yield? Uh, for for grapes, for example, wine grapes in a certain year, mm -hmm. because then you know that relates to contracts and competition with other growers and all of that. So data is is valuable, and but for sure it can it can give value when it's used for to improve uh, uh, the management practices. Mm -hmm. We've already started to touch on it a bit, but why do we need to continue developing robots for agriculture? What mm -hmm stresses will we have in the future that demands we use robots? Okay, yeah, great question. So I would say uh, three different areas. Uh, one is agricultural production. So first of all, if you, if you think of robots, what do they offer? They offer sensing and actuation services so they can collect data and act upon the uh, the ag environment and do it with great precision with great speed without needing a human in the loop at least uh, um, uh, to be there and doing all of the work and then they do it in a cost-effective manner typically so how can we use those services the actuation and sensing services in agriculture first of all food production or food feed textiles biofuels we need to dramatically increase production uh, without, though, increasing the, the inputs, the chemicals, the water, the energy, the labor that we put into the production. So essentially to maximize production while reducing the inputs and also reducing the environmental impact. And to do that, agricultural robots um, are of paramount importance because they can help us do what we call precision farming or precision agriculture. Um, in, in simple words, that means do the right thing at the right time in the right way with the right amount. So, give you an example. If you want to spray a field for weeds, well, the typical approach was to do carpet bombing. You just go in and you apply 
uh, your chemical at a certain rate. However, with robots, you could have sensors that sense the weed pressure. So when there is a higher weed pressure, you can apply more chemicals. When there is less weed pressure, you can apply less chemicals. And then you can do that as you're traveling at you know, 10 miles per hour with great precision. So that's an example of a robotic application uh, where you're maximizing your gain and, and minimizing you know, energy, chemicals, environmental footprint, etc. So ag production is one reason why we need ag robots. Um, the other reason is because we need to, to come up with better varieties of crops, which means we need crops that are even more productive in terms of yield, quantity, and quality. We need crops that are more resistant to disease, to drought, to climate change. And how do we do that? Well, it's called breeding. So we, we cross-fertilize different varieties, and then we plant them in the fields. Plant breeders do that. And it's a numbers game. You try lots of them, and then you have to evaluate how good are they, and then keep cross fertilizing, crossbreeding the, the better varieties and come up with new ones. But that's that's a very time-consuming task because the way it's done now, imagine a field with you know 50 different varieties of a certain crop. You have people going out there and manually looking at the plants and taking notes uh, and, and, and assessing all the traits that they want to assess essentially manually. Robots can do it automatically or to some extent. So, so ag robots can accelerate the breeding process. They can help us come up with newer plants that are better, uh, more resilient, produce more. And, and that's called um, phenotyping, high throughput phenotyping. So there's a whole sector of agrobotics that, that involves uh, uh, phenotyping and, and using robots for breeding. Um, and then the third uh, component is labor, because there is a shortage of labor uh, in many parts of the world and agricultural robots can help us either increase the efficiency of the existing workforce or in some cases replace people from certain tasks, not from all tasks, but for certain tasks that are very labor intensive. And so agricultural robots can be used to um, rely less on, 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 on labor for some types of tasks that are very labor intensive. There would be the three, the three main reasons why we need them and why there's so much development uh, with startups and big companies uh, on robots. You talked about production, labor, and breeding of crops. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us about what you do specifically for your research? Sure, yeah, I'd be, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm not working with, uh, with breeding that much. Uh, I focus on um, robotic harvesting because harvesting is one of the most labor-intensive tasks. And this is where we have a lot of problems, not only in California or in the U.S., but in, in everywhere, 
practically. Um, and so uh, my lab develops technologies to either assist people, farm workers, to be more productive and safe. These are called robotic harvest aids. So they're machines that aid people to harvest. We also develop equipment, robots, machines that harvest themselves so they can be used to autonomously harvest fruits. Uh, I focus on fruits. Uh, and, and I also work on technologies that can be used to quantify how much yield we get from trees or crops like strawberries where either harvesting is manual so we can't really know how how much yield there is in the field uh, with a great resolution or if they're mechanically harvested like almonds for example or pistachios we still don't know how much how many how much is produced per tree and, and you would ask why do we care well if you cannot measure something, you cannot manage it. So unless you know the spatial variability of yield, you can't really start looking into why is it different, why one tree generates 20 kilograms of almonds and the other one, which is the same variety, it's maybe you know 50 meters away, it's producing 60 kilograms. So, so these are the main uh, research areas that I'm working with to summarize, harvest aids, uh, autonomous harvesters and um, yield mapping and yield monitoring. I've seen videos of olive trees being like shaken by robots to like harvest all the olives. Is that technology applicable to different type of trees like fruits or the nuts? And could that be a way of measuring a tree's yield on the spot because it can only do one tree at a time? Yeah, so uh, you you refer to tree, to tree shaking, yes, and this is this is a way to harvest some crops. Uh, it's applicable to nuts, but it's not applicable to fresh market fruits because the fruit gets damaged as it drops from branches through the canopy onto the cutting surface. So this type of shake and cuts approach has been used for uh, tart cherries or olives that will be, uh, um, you know, canned or, you know, for olive oil, but it's not for fresh market mm -hmm. produce for the reasons I explained. It's, it's, it's the damage. And so when you, when you shake a tree and you collect the, the nuts or the fruit, then that machine could be used to quantify the yield. So you have exactly the right idea. And actually, we have a project now with the Almond Board of California and the Pistachio Board where we build some equipment that will go on a harvester and will measure how much was harvested per tree because those nuts, after, after they land on the machine, they, they travel on conveyor belts and then get transported to a wagon. So as they move on the belt, you know, we develop optical uh, um, equipment like lasers and cameras and stuff so so we can actually measure how much is being harvested. A little side tangent, does every fruit or nut in California that, that gets grown have a board? Uh, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, 
Yes, yeah. That's, that's amazing. And, 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 and the boards do a lot of things like, you know, marketing and lobbying, but they also support research. And this is something that's, you know, great because, you know, we can get money to do some very applied research that can be helpful for the growers in the short term. Whereas uh, research that's funded by the federal government, for example, through USDA, NIFA, or NSF, these projects are more long-term and, and, you know, sometimes are more of fundamental nature, mm. uh, whereas the, the projects with the boards, um, they're very applied because they, they want results soon and, and, and that the technology translates into products that can help growers. That's interesting. That was kind of part of one of the questions we had was, mm. has there been backlash into implementation from the farmers? But as you just mentioned, like it seems like the relationship is very much a, a working relationship. It's not so much the research is happening and then they make the product that they're going to try to sell. It's right. all done in one right. one little vacuum. Right. To a large extent, yes. Even the, you know, the startup companies that develop, for example, agricultural robots, they really work very close to the, with the farmers because they need to test on their fields. And, and so the farmers are welcoming these technologies because first of all they save uh, um, a lot of time they save cost they reduce their reliance on labor and they they can also uh, give them more free time let me give you an example uh, th there are milking robots for cows uh, they they are much more widespread in Europe like in the Netherlands for example um, but, but, but they're, they're available here too. And, and those robots, essentially, this is a big machine where actually the cow goes through the machine and it gets milked. Now, it's an expensive machine. The cows actually love it also. But the farmers love it not, not only because it, you know, automates a process that's manual, etc. but do you have to milk cows, for example, at, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning or do it multiple times? They don't need to do that. So it, it, it improves their own lives. Uh, and so in general, farmers have been very, very positive uh, when it comes to these new technologies. And this might be a little bit of a backtrack, but you mentioned how your research focuses on the harvest. Could you just give a brief overview of the different stages involved in the agricultural process? Well, that, that's very much crop dependent because, you know, if we are talking about uh, trees, then it's a process where, you know, you prepare your field and then you will uh, transplant, you know, the little trees from the nurseries and then they, it will take a few years until they become productive and then they have a lifespan of several decades. I mean, we even have pear orchards, for example, where the trees are 70 or 80 years old. Uh, so that's one type of, of production process. But then, you know, if you have strawberries, then that, that's different. Uh, if you have annual crops, then of course you need to plant every year. So it, it really depends on the crop. Uh, California, we grow a lot of specialty crops. And by that, we mean vegetables, fruits, nuts and also floriculture you know flowers so not like corn and soy correct 
Yeah, no, not much of that. The, these are grown in other parts of the country. They, they require much more water. They are typically rain-fed, so they rely on rain. Um, and, and so we, you know, the crops that I mentioned are high-value crops, uh, and they are, you know, ca the Californian climate is perfect for them, the soil. The, so that's why we actually have so much of that production. When you mentioned a lot of Silicon Valley, the ag tech startups, what are some of the major hubs in the world for ag tech and robotics and agriculture development? All right. So um, there, there are several hubs. I would say that uh, agricultural robots for, for specialty crops like orchards, vineyards, uh, uh, vegetable production, etc., um, there was more development in in Europe, Netherlands, for example, uh, Wageningen University is, is a major hub, um, and also in Israel, uh, and and a little bit less in the U.S. But over the recent years, um, I would say that California is the main hub. I mean, uh, a lot of the um, innovation is happening here and pretty much all of the companies that are working on agricultural robots from the Netherlands, France, Italy, Israel, they all establish their presence in California. Um, also Australia is um, is a big you know hub for agricultural robotics and ag technology. Um, so I, I yeah these are the main happening places. Do you think that is attributed to the fact that Silicon Valley has so much money being fed into these startups and they are only an hour to two hours away from a lot of agricultural production? Yeah, this is definitely part of of the reason. Uh, I mean, there is a whole ecosystem that supports startups and innovation, a lot of venture capital first. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, the farms that that have all those specialty crops that are nearby and the growers where you know they're typically very progressive they work with startup companies um and also the scale of the market this is a huge market if, if you're developing strawberry robots you know california produces 80 percent of strawberries of, of of the nation um if you are talking almonds we produce most of the production for the world so, um, I mean, these are all factors that, that contribute. And there is a lot of talent, of course, a lot of engineering talent um, and um, horticultural expertise from, you know, Davis and, and um, the, the California Valley in general. That makes a lot of sense. And is the recent growth of the sector, is that driven by people realizing how large the sector is or is, are there other factors that are pushing the growth? Um, well, demand for that technology has increased and and also the, the shortage of farm labor has been more acute in, in recent years. So that, that, that plays a role. Um, also the fact that a lot of the technologies that are being used in agricultural robotics, um, some of them have already been developed for, you know, autonomous driving or 
or other robotic um, uh, applications. And so there is a, a diffusion of those technologies into the ag sector. Mm -hmm. And also the very fact that electronics have become much cheaper. So you can have you know, laser 3D sensors and 3D cameras, uh, high-performance computers with you know, GPUs uh, that are low, low in cost, and that enables those robots to, to be very effective, efficient, at, at a reasonable cost. Yeah. Has the rob robotic industry seen as big of an impact as probably like cell phones and laptops with issues with China and the supply chain issues abroad? Um, well, the, 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 the robotic scene, the agricultural robotics industry is still relatively small. So we, even we have seen a huge impact on the, the price of parts and the availability of parts. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that robotics companies have seen that too. Uh, and they are competing against automobile manufacturers and, and, you know, other electronics, uh, uh, manufacturers, so everybody's feeling the pressure, uh, but it's a smaller sector, and maybe that makes it even worse because when you're smaller, you you don't have as uh, as good of an access to uh, to the supplies. Just as an example, you know, we were using uh, Raspberry Pi boards, little computers that used to cost twelve dollars. Now they're not available. You can only buy them at fifty or sixty dollars per unit. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> and that's only an example. I mean, we, we face this challenge with our own development here, which is small scale. We're just one laboratory, for example. So we talked about scale and price, and earlier you mentioned battery. Could you explain some of the other challenges preventing widespread implementation of robotic technology in agriculture? Sure, yes. Uh, so agricultural robots uh, face two main challenges. One is uh, coming from the biology. So plants, you know, are very different from each other. They are complicated structures. Um, the visibility and accessibility, say, of their fruits, if you want to do harvesting, for example, um, is not... Uh, taken for granted, it's challenging. They are not man-made objects. Automation and robotics works best when you control the environment, like in an assembly line, where you can structure the environment so that it's easier for the robot to operate. Everything is predictable, deterministic, etc. Well, orchards and vineyards and fields are not like that. So there is biological variability, complexity in the structure of the plants, and also the ambient light, the weather, everything is dynamic and changes. And so that presents problems. As an example, if you cannot see where an apple is, you can't really go and pick it, right? So even if you have the best sensor camera, the best robotic arm, if you can't even see the fruit, you can't pick it. So that's what I mean one challenge is coming from nature, from biology. Uh, the other challenge is that for a robot to become cost-effective, it needs to operate very fast. It needs to be very precise and, 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 and effective. 
and it needs to be relatively low cost. So let me give an example again from harvesting because it's my area of expertise. If you if you want to harvest apples in an orchard and you are using a platform where people stand on it and, and harvest fruit so they don't need to climb ladders, um, a worker can pick one apple in one and a half seconds. That's the that's the rate. Now, if you build a robot that costs three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars and can pick at that speed one fruit per second, say, it's not good enough because you are paying a lot of money for something that replaces one person, right? So, so the speed needs to be really high. Also, a human when the when when goes and harvests. You know, they will pick 95, 98% of the fruit. They can see it all. You know, our eyes, our perception is amazing and we can move around and, and, and find things that are not directly visible. Robots are still not able to do that, at least quickly. So if a robot picks only 80% of the fruit and the rest is left on the tree, that also increases your cost, right? So... Doing things very fast, doing things very effectively, efficiently, and at a low cost, these are all goals that are difficult to achieve at once, concurrently. And that makes it difficult to develop agricultural robots that are cost-effective enough to be widely adopted. Um, so I said nature presents us with problems, challenges, and then you know, technology also presents us with challenges to overcome those problems. And then the other thing is that especially crops are a fragmented market. So if you build a robot to harvest strawberries, the same robot cannot be used to harvest watermelons, right? Or, or kiwis. So uh, that fragmentation also makes it more difficult for companies to develop, to, to spend a lot of money to invest in building a machine that has a, a market that's relatively small. So you only target markets that are big enough. So, so these are some of the factors of why progress has not been super uh, impressive in, in certain areas. But in some other areas, we have overcome those problems. As an example, Harvesting is, again, very difficult, but, for example, robotic weeding is a technology that's becoming very widespread now, and it's commercial, and you can buy uh, or you can get services of a weeding robot that will come to your field and will only remove or kill weeds without damaging your crop and without spraying everything, you know, without doing carpet bombing, let's say. Would you say that's our best hope at getting America off all these additives and chemicals sprayed on foods is precision agriculture and that being like the hope to improve so many Americans' health? Because especially since you're from Greece, I feel like you mm -hmm. can speak on this a little bit more. The quality of food difference between American agriculture and European agriculture, my best friend growing up, like from back home is from Greece and he noticed a huge shift when he came from eating Greek food that's primarily like local to coming to America with 
food grown all over the country, sprayed with so many different chemicals. Could you touch on maybe how the European market handles food and spraying chemicals differently than the U.S. and how precision agriculture could improve the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one thing to consider is that the the varieties that we plant and 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 consume have been bred, and in most part of the world. The breeding, the goal of breeding was to make things bigger. So, you know, as consumers, and I believe especially in the States, I've seen that too, we like our tomatoes to be big. We like our strawberries to be huge. I remember when I was a grad student, um, that was in the 90s, before you guys were born. <laughs> um, I was in the uh, East Coast, New York, and then I took a trip to San Francisco, and I, uh, I was in San Francisco, I saw some some vendor selling strawberries from a distance. From a distance, I thought he was selling tomatoes. They were red and they were huge. I'd never seen such huge strawberries. And as I got closer, I was amazed by the size. So what I'm trying to say is that for a long time, we have been breeding crops with one thing in mind, size and yield. But flavor is not necessarily does not necessarily correlate with size. Sometimes smaller size gives you a much richer flavor. And so in certain parts of Europe, many of the older original varieties had been preserved. And so what you're eating is tastes better because it, it was not bred to be just large or look perfect. Um, it also has to do with scale and 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 the and transport and for example some some fruit will be picked when they are not ripe because they need to have a longer shelf life and so in a smaller market or in a smaller country what you consume perhaps was picked a couple of days ago but then in a larger country or you know when when your food your crops are transported from the west to the east coast or are flown from chile for example maybe they were harvested three weeks ago or two weeks ago that also plays an important role and then touching upon chemicals um, i have to be honest i think chemicals are used all over the world uh, and organic uh, agriculture is a very small percentage of, of agriculture but I, I firmly believe and, and know that robots can help us improve dramatically in the, on this front because they can dramatically reduce the use of chemicals. Uh, and we've already seen that with uh, weeding, for example, and precision spraying. And so I can see them as an enabling technology to get much better fruits and vegetables that are fresher, uh, that are, you know, that were not treated with chemicals and perhaps even that they were harvested on demand in a sense that I harvest it now and it can be consumed locally because they just make it possible to harvest multiple times uh, when it's the right time to harvest because now, you know, if you find a harvesting crew, you can't afford to do two or three or four passes Let's say you pick apples, you'll pick them twice. Now, if you had a machine that was cost-effective, you might pick them four times, for example, when it's you know 
the optimal time to pick them. So, yes, I, I think that robotic technologies can do that. Um, the example of weeding, you know, either you have people with hose removing weeds if you don't want to spray, but that's very expensive. So not everybody has access to such organic, you know, uh, food. Or you have a robot that has a camera and it moves over the field, it finds the weeds and kills only them with a mechanical hoe. And and it does that very cost effectively. And then now the cost goes down and maybe everybody can get access to those organically produced uh, crops. So yeah, definitely. I'm very, very optimistic about robotics uh, improving uh, food production. That's amazing. I also wanted to ask about use of drones. We're going to bring on another person specifically about that. Mm -hmm. But are you maybe working with other labs who specialize in drones? Because I've did research for a finance internship before, and they were looking at acquiring companies who were in the ag tech sector. And some of the ones I came across in Germany were these drone companies that would spot the weeds up to a couple millimeters. And then the robot on the ground would go out and pick that. Mm -hmm. So is there a lot of opportunity for like cross lab collaboration and maybe implementation of different technologies that are being used for something else, but now you can apply that to your robots? Yes, definitely. Uh, there are ground robots, and I work primarily with ground robots, and there are UAVs, drones, flying robots. And sometimes, you know, for example, if you just want to get data and, and fly over a field and use uh, multispectral cameras to get signatures from plants at different wavelengths and take visual images, etc. You can do it much better with a drone because it's fast. It can give you a lot of information. So it makes a lot of sense to use it. And then it may also make sense to get data from a ground robot that sees underneath the crop, for example, or underneath a tree. So it has a different viewpoint. Um, and, and there are applications where you combine them both. So we do collaborate to some extent with uh, labs that use uh, drones. For example, in the project I mentioned for almond yield mapping, we uh, we make the device that measures the yield. And then another lab here uh, on campus, they fly drones over the same almond orchard, let's say one month before harvest. They collect images and then with those images, they train a neural network to predict the yield of each tree. Mm. So we provide ground truth. We tell them, okay, that tree produced 25 kilograms. The other tree produced 70 kilograms. And then they have images of all those trees from above at different wavelengths. And so they can train a neural network to use only the images and predict the yield a month later. That's just an example of how you combine information from the ground, information from the air. The one that you mentioned is also very meaningful. You, you fly over, you can spot all the weeds, you create a weed map, and then another robot or a fleet of robots downloads the weed map 
and then just goes there and kills. Uh, maybe those robots don't even need a camera because if you have the GPS coordinates of the weeds, you actually don't need a camera to uh, to kill them. Um, uh, interestingly enough, a few years back, a similar technology was introduced by uh, uh, UC Davis and our department, Professor Dave Slaughter and uh, Srinu Padaya. Their idea was uh, when you plant crops, you you tag each plant with an exact GPS coordinate so you know exactly where it is up to a you know half an inch or less. And then when you go back, you kill everything that's not a plant that you planted. So the idea is that if you are not my friend, you're my enemy, right? <laughs> if I didn't put you there, you don't belong there. So that concept, you know, was tested. So it's just a different way of, of weeding. Um, but but the combination of flying drones and ground robots is definitely something that we are looking into and other people are looking into. It's just a matter of how you combine different technologies and and sensors and and uh, uh, actuators and vehicles to have the best possible result. Could you talk us through the design process for robots and explain why function has to be specific? Right, yeah. So when when robotics were uh, in their infancy, let's say in the 50s, 60s, you know, the dream was that we would build a robot that's like a humanoid or it would be a, a universal machine that could be reprogrammed to do all kinds of tasks. So build a robot that can wash your dishes, uh, mow the lawn, go harvest lemons from your tree, do all of that. But it turns out that we cannot build humans or humanoid robots that are as capable. It's, it's outside of our technological reach. Um, and so this is one primary reason why you see so much specialization in robots. There is a robotic vacuum cleaner to clean your carpets, but there is also a robotic uh, uh, vehicle to model on. Um, and and in agriculture, there is so much diversity in the crops and the operations that we have to design robots that are optimized for those tasks. Because as I mentioned earlier, if a robot does a task, but it doesn't do it very fast, quickly, efficiently, then it doesn't make economic sense to use it. So can you build a robot that harvests watermelons and raspberries and be the, they have the same robot? No, right? If it's a human, yeah, you could, you know, supposedly program it, a humanoid robot to do all those tasks. But if it's a machine, uh, it needs to be optimized, fine-tuned to do that task. And so if you have a, a robot with multiple arms to pick watermelons, they have to be able to lift a heavy load. If you want to design arms that uh, are picking raspberries, those arms don't need to be heavy or carry a lot of load, but they need to be very, very fast. So um, these are you can already see an example where the design has to be totally different. You have a heavyweight lifter, and then you have a sprinter. They have to be different. Um, and so... When we design a robot, 
when people design robots, they start with the task. What should the robot do? And then once you describe the task and you set some goals for or some metrics on, on how well you need to do that task, let's say pick 10 fruits per second or five, or uh, be able to pick 90% of the fruit. Um, you know, what's, what's the reach of the robot? Should it be able to reach 10 feet above the ground or is it working close to the ground? Uh, what should then be the kinematics, the geometry? How fast should it be? That dictates the dynamics of the robot. Uh, and so you start from what needs to be done and what are the performance metrics. And then, of course, you look into literature, you see what other people build. You rely also on your experience, what you know your lab or your team has done so far. And then you synthesize, you brainstorm, you come up with ideas on how to design, improve upon existing designs. Um, you do some of that with modeling, but then there is a lot of trial and error because robotics is, is a field where the machine needs to physically interact with things. And, and, and that's very difficult. It's very challenging. This is why you see a lot of drones being developed. Most of the companies that developed agrobots, they developed flying drones because those just fly. But if you need something that actually goes and grabs a, a pitch and doesn't bruise it or squish it, uh, and finds it among the branches and goes and gets it. That's a different story. So, so going back to the design again, starting from the goal, setting metrics for performance, doing literature review to see what's available, what are other options, approaches, and then brainstorming, coming up with novel ideas, building, testing, rebuilding, retesting. And that takes time. And that's why many robotics companies um, have been developing a product for years. You know, you hear in the news, oh, you know, so-and-so built a, a strawberry harvesting robot. And that, that first article came back in 2013, and it's now 10 years later, and hopefully the company is still in business, but they're still developing that machine. Mm. So it's not, it's not an easy task, but it's a very rewarding task it's really fascinating sounds like a very fun process it is it yeah. is what areas of agriculture need robots the most if you're looking into the future and you could wave a magic wand and say all right these few crops or sectors are going to get the most attention because they need the most attention what would they be okay um in terms of agricultural robots, uh, specialty crops need most of the attention because they involve a lot of manual labor. I mean, a lot of uh, operations in specialty crops are manual. You need to go and prune the vines. You know, there is dozens of workers with clippers going and, and, and pruning. Uh, you need to thin uh, uh, the fruit, people go and do it manually. You need to harvest hundreds of people, huge crews will go and pick your table grapes or your fruits, etc. So, 
So our production of specialty crops is a sector that really badly needs agricultural robotic uh, technologies. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the manual processes, but also the applications where you can save a lot on chemicals and improve the environmental footprint. Those also are in great need and will benefit from robotics. Um, we already see that in crops like, you know, uh, uh, corn and, and, and soy, etc., where precision farming and precision uh, equipment uh, is really reducing the use of chemicals and improving uh, agricultural productivity. Uh, we will see a lot of that uh, also in, in, in the specialty crop sector. So field production is one area. The other area um, is uh, processing. And, and we saw the need with COVID. Remember when, you know, there were all the news that, you know, people could not go to work and, and we needed our meat and we needed our produce and who is going to work in the packing houses, etc. So processing of crops and food is another sector that is, is in need of robotics. There is a lot of automation already in packing houses, hmm. uh, but there are a lot of uh, uh, operations there that are still manual, um, with meat processing especially, uh, and there is a huge need to introduce robotics in that space. Uh, it's difficult, but it's the need is there, and, and we are seeing more and more uh, novelty and, and robotic automation uh, novelty going into that sector that's great and i have a quick question about your lab in particular you mentioned how one of the biggest difficulties with agricultural robotics is dealing with nature that you can apply tech all you want but at the end of the day you're dealing with these dynamic forces do you have students from multiple disciplines working in your lab to help combat that yes uh I mean, robotics is interdisciplinary, right? And and um, in my lab, I have students from uh, biosystems engineering, which is my major, and the department is biological and agricultural engineering. So, so I have students from this major. I have mechanical engineering students, electrical engineering students, um, fewer computer science students, but that's a very uh, relevant major too. And then... I have had interns who were more into plant science and but were interested also in the uh, technology side um, and, and and worked in the lab. So so it is multidisciplinary, but because we do a lot of development, it's very engineering heavy. So most of the students, the large majority, are from engineering disciplines. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The overall. Ag robot space seems very entrepreneurial and taking on that mindset. Of, I have a problem to solve. How will I get there? Maybe there's not the specific parts designed for that task, but I could take this part over here and apply it there. Overall, it just seems like a very good problem solving field. How would you talk to other students of the non engineering background and say, here is why your interests and needs could be great for the ag robot 
industry and or here's how you can take my ideas and the way we approach our problems and apply it to your own industry and sector. Like I said, robotics is interdisciplinary in terms of the development of robots. But what what you said also is true that, you know, if you want to have a startup, for example, engineering is not enough. So you, you have to have people who are uh, business oriented and, and who are who understand very well um, the the farm processes, the farm environment, the, uh, all the operations. Uh, they understand the engineering and they're able to articulate the added value of, uh, of agricultural robots uh, to potential uh, investors and customers. Um, so, so for sure, uh, you know, People who are um, on the business side, for example, uh, you know they they are they could be very helpful um, to to develop and uh, uh, deploy these technologies and and also uh, have all those startups that you know make the ecosystem that 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 makes robotics blossom. Uh, but problem solving is something that is common. In pretty much all tasks, uh, you know whether you are doing, uh, I don't know, business or you are in design, not necessarily engineering design. Um, you know, problem solving is is a major skill, um, and and so the process that I mentioned before, the process of, you know, describing what the problem is, setting performance goals seeing what other ideas, what other approaches exist, and then digest all that, brainstorm, uh, uh, and, and come up with different novel approaches to solving the problem. I think that's something that, that's common to pretty much all, all disciplines, and, and everybody can benefit from getting involved in such, such a process. So, again, you know, we are welcoming students from other disciplines in the lab uh, because everybody anybody could contribute to to this goal i'm not sure if i answered the question that's great uh, yeah no perfect and to students that are interested in robotics how would you recommend they get involved in the field both broadly and here at uc davis mm -hmm. so broadly i mean also in uc davis i would say first of all uh Take a course if if courses are available on, on robotics. Um, even if they are or if they are not, you can also take online courses. There are some excellent online courses where you can also download or have access to online simulators where you can readily write code and see your robots move around and do things. And then be involved in student robotics clubs for example, UC Davis has a robotics uh, club uh, that you know gives you the opportunity to do a lot of hands-on work and also network with people who are who share your interests. Uh, possibly going to a competition through the club, uh, and then uh, try to join a lab. There are labs that are working in robotics, like mine and other labs in UC Davis, uh, but also of course other schools, uh, and. I think 
people are sometimes reluctant because they feel that, oh, but I need to be very good. I need to know a lot of, you know, robotics things to go into a lab. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, we we have students who are just interested. They have some background in, in math or, or in electrical, electronics, software. They have some some skills. And then there are always tasks that they can do to gradually enter that space. So I would say be proactive and, and don't be shy. Just send an email to professors who are working in this area or just knock on their doors and, and, and see whether you can uh, work with them. Uh, I think in most cases you will get a yes. So this would be, I guess, the, the, the main advice I would give people. Just go and, and do it and, and don't really be reluctant or shy to get involved. Yeah. Be interested first and the skills can come second. Yeah, I mean, if you're not interested in something, then why pursue it? Uh, although it's 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 interesting that in our major, for example, because it's biosystems engineering, so it's very it's wide. So we do food engineering, we do biotech, we do um, irrigation robotics, you know, ag and natural resources uh, technologies. There are students who do an internship in a biology-related lab, and then they will do an internship in a robotics lab or a food lab because they don't know exactly what they're interested in. They like this space, and they try to find out what their calling is, if you will, mm. by sampling you know, different plates, yeah. different things, mm. which is also something very legitimate. It could be a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. As we wrap up here, do you have any other advice to students, listeners that you want to share? Advice? Well, first of all, I'm I'm very optimistic and enthusiastic about uh, the robotics uh, uh, field, uh, the robotic technologies. They are part of the present and they will be part of the future. And as machine learning and AI tools become even uh, uh, more um, elaborate and effective, that will also increase robotic capabilities. So this is a sector that has a bright future and for a good, you know, for to 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 help humanity. So it's a great field to be in or to get involved in. Um, and advice is. Get involved. You know, if if you if you think you're interested, don't be shy. Uh, just get involved. And if you are not interested, you might still want to get a sample, a taste of it. Who knows? You may love it. Yeah. That's great. Well, Professor Vujukas, this has been wonderful. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk a lot, maybe, <laughs> about something that I love. But, you know, college professors, right? You ask them for a five-minute talk and then they, it's 20 minutes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. This is great. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time. <laughs>